Welcome to my den. Today's guest led a global team of native digitals across 22 countries, and there were over 200 members of Gen Z. Now, some of you might get completely scared at the prospect of managing 200 Gen Zers if you believe in the stereotypes that, that we all hear about Gen Z, whether it's that Gen Z is lazy or flaky or whatever you hear. But if you've been listening to this show long enough, I hope that those assumptions have been disproved, that you have really embraced the idea that a native digital can add a lot to your organization. And if that is you, whatever side of the coin you're on, you're really going to love this interview with Katie Curry or Ekaterina Curry. She is amazing. And she, in this episode, gives us very, very practical tools as leaders to embrace and unlock the potential of Gen Z. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the advantages of global trending culture and how all of those TikTok dances you see actually help to defy and break down geographical barriers between global teams. You're going to hear how to use sprints to get Gen Z achieving exponentially faster and better goals. You're going to learn how to motivate your Gen Z team and also how to structure promotions to engage native digitals. Stay tuned for that toward the end of the episode because in the first part, Katie's going to walk us through her journey as a young girl growing up in Bulgaria, moving to the U.S. with very little cultural context, and how she eventually became the global leader of a company that is in the capital markets space, and now how Katie has become an expert in those markets. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. This one really, really is going to keep you on the edge of your seats with just the amazing stories that Katie shares. Now, before we get into the episode, if you haven't joined the DeSkills community, now is a fantastic time because we have started hosting networking hubs at the end of every single month. They are held on the last Thursday in the evening, 7 p.m. Eastern of every month, we're going to be hosting these events to give you a little bit of a preview of what's to come. Not only will you get to network with native digitals who, hint, hint, you could potentially hire for internships, micro internships, or projects, um, but you also get to hear a wide variety of their perspectives instead of just mine. We're going to have Gen Z panels coming up where leaders from both the native digital and native analog perspectives will ask each other questions and you can pitch in your own questions that may be happening or coming up or arising in your own organizations. So I will drop the link in the show notes if you want to join the community and you can't attend an event, that is fine. I really highly encourage you to just get in there and look at what these native digitals are up to. We're on the Geneva platform. So if you're not familiar with that, it kind of works like a Facebook group. So just hop in there. You can see what native digitals are up to and we have a lot of fun discussions. All right, without further ado, Buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Katie Curry. 
You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. I've meant to ask you, do you want to go by Katie or Ekaterina? Katie. Katie. Okay. I love Katie Curry. It's so illiterate. <laughs> I love it. Yes, it, it has a little bit of a ring to it. But uh, of course, my full name is, is long, Ekaterina, and some people struggle with it. So, you know, my, my mom wanted to name me Katie, but because I grew up in Bulgaria, I think that wasn't, uh, you know, one of the common names. So she named me Ekaterina with the short name of Katie. I was actually wondering that. Is, is Ekaterina a Bulgarian name? Ekaterina is an Eastern European name. It, uh, you can find it in Bulgaria. You find it in Russia and in Ukraine and some of the other countries. But um, it's a common name. I think it's, you know, very linked to Catherine or Cassie in, in, uh, um, in, in the West. It makes sense. I, I think it's a more beautiful version of Kathy or Katie or, or whatever. I, I love when there's like long, elegant names that people shorten and then make it, you know, make it theirs. But you can then write on all your legal documents, you know, that long, luxurious name that sounds like a, a, you're from a line of royalty. <laughs> yes, I, I had a very long last name as well before I got married. So sometimes I couldn't even fit my all of my letters in the when I was filling out forms. So of, of course, after I got me. married. <laughs> what was your what was your maiden name? <laughs> yeah. My maiden name was Shishmanova. Shishmanova. Shishmanova, yes. And the story goes that the last Bulgarian king, right before the Ottoman Empire took over Bulgaria, uh, that was in, in the uh, 1500s, his name was Shishman. And I'm not related. Of course, I'd love to look back and, and uh, do the family history and find out, but... Um, this is my last name stems from his name, Shishmanova. But of course, I married an Irish guy and he has a very short name, Curry. So I ended up with Ekaterina Curry. Did you keep Shishmanova as your middle name? Yeah, I'm keeping it. Yes. Yes. So you're Ekaterina Shishmanova Curry. I am Ekaterina Curry, but I keep as a middle name Shishmanova. That is yeah. so beautiful. Seriously and beautiful. In Eastern Europe, especially in Bulgaria, first children's middle names are their father's names. And so I also have my father's name. So that's even girls, girls and boys? Yes, girls and boys, they have the father's middle name or the father's first name becomes their middle name. So if you're a girl, my father's name was Zhivko. My middle name was Zhivkova. Um, and... If I were a boy, if I had a brother, which I don't, but his name would be Zhivkov. So just the one Zhivkov versus Zhivkova. And that's every, every family. It's a Bulgarian tradition. It's, it's, it's a Bulgarian tradition. Yes. Yes. It's been, it's been around for many centuries. I think it's changing a little bit now, but it's, uh, I would say over 90% of people still keep 
the father's middle first name is their middle name is the kid's middle name wow i i learned something brand new today i know nothing about bulgarian culture other than some of the food which i it's amazing amazing uh, the uh, what is it called a, a burek is that the uh, yeah burek yes burek. burek okay that's right and bulgarian bulgaria is very famous for yogurt and rose oil and it, you would see Basilicus bulgaricus in a lot of yogurts. And uh, then, you know, it's a good quality yogurt. Of course, we, um, together with Greece and Turkey, we have very similar cuisine. And Bulgaria is kind of in the intersection. It's um, some, some Greek foods and, and the ingredients that we use and, and some Turkish and, of course, some other Eastern European. It's, it's an interesting cuisine. What are some other things that the average American doesn't have a clue about in Bulgarian culture? Ah, well, Bulgaria is famous for saying yes and no the opposite way when you shake your head. I think it's the only country. So I think, you know, uh, when people used to travel, and now Bulgarians are adjusting a little bit because they understand that the rest of the world does not operate like that. Um, But it used to be quite strange when, um, you know, someone asks you a question, a foreigner comes in and uh, you're saying, yes, yes. And uh, you're saying, no, no, no. So I think that, wow. that's, that yeah, that's an interesting curiosity. That has got to create so much confusion. So what was it like? You were 17 when you moved to the U.S., right? Yes, I was 17 when I moved to the U.S., and it was such an exciting experience for me. It, uh, it was the time when communism had just collapsed. It was in the 90s, and I had an opportunity to come to uh, go to college here on a scholarship. And the whole world was so different for me. Uh, one, because Bulgaria, first of all, because I come from a small town in a remote location. Um, so that that was part of it. But secondly, this was before the internet and before I had as much information about the United States. And so when I arrived, and it took me three flights to even make it here. There's no direct flight. And it was my first time on an airplane and, you know, making it here. Uh, it, it was like a whole new world had opened for me. It was an exciting time and it was a scary time and it was a learning time. But uh, it's it's been a lot of fun, and uh, it's been more than twenty five years for me now. So I I feel like I am, um, you know, American, and I'm Bulgarian, and I keep my roots um, in, in in my language. But at the same time, I also have spent more of my life in the U.S. than I did in Bulgaria. That's amazing. I mean, well, and to imagine that you transitioned to another country as a teenager. That's got to be quite a thing. I mean, it's different when you bring over a two-year-old or, you know, when you're very, very young or when you're an adult. But a teenager is going through so, so much in school and life and hormones. Like, that's, that's got to be fascinating. So what drove the, like, why did your family make the journey? Yes. So I'm happy to tell you. And I made the journey on my own without my family. So wow. I, I think that this, this is interesting. I have a 17-year-old son now and I, uh, you know, I look at him and I, I uh, uh, think about whether he's ready to, to go to a different continent on his own. And, you know, for the most part, he is ready. And 
look, a lot of our Gen Z and, and young people are very much ready. But I made the journey because Bulgaria really struggled at that time. It was right after the 90s, it, it, during the 90s, right after communism collapsed. Uh, we had hyperinflation. We had the long lines um, in front of the stores. And I really wanted to go to school uh, in the United States. And it was a big dream for me. And I didn't know if it was going to happen because I needed to get a scholarship somewhere and I needed to find a way to come over and, um, you know, get myself established. And it was, I had got a wonderful opportunity from some American teachers who taught in my school and uh, they helped me apply to college and I got admitted and uh, got a scholarship. And when I arrived, I stayed with them during my first year in college. Um, and I got a job right away. So it, it was such an exciting journey, growing up in a small town, coming to the United States, going to college, working, learning about the people and the culture, and learning about myself and who I am and who I want to become. It, it was an interesting journey. It sounds fascinating. And I, you know, I hear stories about people like you, who whether, whether it was driven by, you know, something going on in the country, whether it was political or economic, and they came to the U.S. or Canada, or, you know, I, I even, I, as you know, just came back from South America, from Colombia. And there were so many people immigrating to Colombia and out of Colombia based on whether, well, this, this is what was interesting to me. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. So in Colombia, which this, this is mind opening for me, as uh, maybe you hear this all the time, but when I told people a couple months ago that my husband and I were going to spend three months in Colombia, everyone's reaction was, why Colombia, right? There's this sort of aura or sort of um, idea that I'm assuming came from the 90s, or the early 2000s, when there was so much, you know, so many drug problems happening. Yep. So, as a native digital, as a Gen Zer, I'm too young to remember all of that. So to me, it's uh, Colombia is just another beautiful South American country, right? But anyone who is um, older than probably 35 remembers those times when it was not. Anyway, we're in Colombia, and I'm asking some of the locals, you know, why do you think so much immigration happens to the U.S., right? Like, why do so many people risk their lives? There's apparently a part of the Amazon that is between Peru and Ecuador, I believe, where people are literally walking through swamps with quicksand with their kids to, you know, attempt to cross the border. And you find, you know, it's very savage. You find bodies all through there because they don't make it through. But anyway, I had a very interesting conversation with a local and she was describing to me that the reason that some of these people are leaving their countries is not necessarily because it's so bad in their countries. It's simply that there's, you know, this idea of the American dream that everything's better right when you cross the line. Maybe you don't have to work as hard. There's always plentiful food, you know, whatever the case might be. So there's this this um, false assumption, right, that not only are they escaping something that, you know, a uh, political environment or economic environment that is bad. And in many cases, it's not that terrible. It's just maybe not as free or as prosperous as you'd have it in some other countries. The point being, my mind was open because I realized, you know, some of the reasons that people choose to come to the U.S. 
are just because of this aura of the American dream. So anyway, I wanted to get your perspective on that coming from a different side of the globe, a different world. Like what what like what was your mindset of coming to America and how has that changed over time? Yeah, that's such a cool observation about Colombia and and, uh, what you said, Hannah, about opening your mind on what people are leaving and what they're running away from and then what they're running towards. And I, I think for me, it was a different time as well. Things have changed since the 90s across the globe. But clearly, I think people come here for the opportunities. That's definitely something that I think is, um, has always been and hopefully will continue to be uh, part of the American experience and the American dream for many people like me who are immigrants. Uh, but I didn't know a lot about, about the United States because the information that, um, you know, the information wasn't as available as it is now. And I had seen American movies and, you know, I listened to American music. And in fact, American music is what drove me to learn English. I just wanted to understand the songs because, you know, I love the beat and I love the songs, but I couldn't understand what, you know, what they were singing about. But it's it's similar. I, I think my perspective was quite limited. It was Yes, a perception, and it was. It really came from America's biggest export, which is movies and Hollywood and American culture. And um, I think that that has been America's biggest ex- um, export for quite a while. Yes, it's it's changing to some extent, but uh, that's how I learned about the U.S. is from the movies and the songs. That's so interesting. I mean, that exactly what you just described is what every Colombian local was sharing with me too. It's like this um, this pull or draw toward the music, the art, and the movies. And that's the perception of America. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, I, I in some extent, it's cool. And others, it's like, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think the other kind of side of the perception is around entrepreneurship and the opportunities here in the U.S. to come and get educated and whether you're starting your own business or working with someone else on their business, um, I think that the opportunities for innovation, for creativity, and for being a little bit more in charge of your life and in charge of your um, growth, uh, whether it's personal growth, learning, and financial growth, I think that that, that is a draw. It, it has been a draw. And yes, it's changing. And yes, there are many different countries. And, you know, there are a lot of people across the the globe who are hostile to the United States and who dislike um, many things around American culture and American life. Of course, there are those. But uh, there also are many others who continue to be drawn to, to come and um, to have this amazing American experience. Bring up a very interesting observation, which is, well, there's two things. One, I see among my generation this sort of trend of disenchantment toward America. And these are mostly my generation who have grown up in America. We have no other experience. But then the point you brought up of of this, the, the immigrants coming in have this vision, want, you know, to be entrepreneurs, want to have this, you know, creative free outlet to start a business or whatnot. So it's almost like 
at least looking at this from a, you know, sort of global perspective, it's almost like the immigrants coming here to America are the ones sort of carrying on the American dream. And those of us who've been here in America, at least the younger generation, there's this sense of, I guess, disenchantment is probably the best word. It's like, and, you know, it's, I think sometimes when I see my peers who are well-traveled versus those who aren't, there's a better, you know, for the people who are well-traveled, they do have a better global understanding of the pros, the cons. For example, when we were just in Colombia, because that's fresh on my mind, there's so many things about the way the city operates that we could use in America, and it would be so, so, you know, important. Um, I mean, just an example, in their parking decks, they have these light sensors that turn green or red based on if a car is there. So you can instantly, when you walk, you know, drive into a parking deck, you can see which spaces are available. There's also a citywide across Medellin. Not only do they have trash and recycling, there's a third bucket for composting. And that's literally everywhere. It's a norm. So there are some interesting things. And that's not that's just talking about, you know, little metropolitan things, not just political movements. But there's things that, you know, I took away from that experience that many people just haven't had the chance to see. So it, it's this interesting. I, I, do you see that in your realm where there's young kids disenchanted with America? Absolutely. I, I see that. In fact, I have two teenagers. I have a 17-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter, and I see it among their friends. And I think that clearly we have some significant problems in the U.S. And we've made progress in some areas, and there's a lot more progress that needs to be made in other areas. But what I think the immigrants have is a different perspective. It's a little bit of a bigger picture. It's more data points of comparison. I have the data point of what life is like, you know, in another place. And of course, there are many wonderful things there, but there are also many challenges. And so I think that in many ways, I see the immigrant experience as an experience that has a deeper appreciation for the United States, for the opportunities and for um, what the U.S. offers. Well, this is the perfect transition to what I wanted to ask you about your your vision and your work experience, because it sounds like America has afforded you some amazing opportunities to lead global Gen Z teams and, and millennial teams. So what was your what was your journey or your story to working in in the financial analytics field and how did that trans or how did that come about from your yeah. you know, your immigrant experience? Yes, well uh, thanks for asking. So I graduated from college and then I uh, came to New York. I am based just outside of New York and I took a bus tour of New York. And, um, you know, on that bus tour, I was there with my husband and we passed by Wall Street and I said, wow, it would be my dream one day to work here. I think that this is what I really would like to do. And it was uh, 1997 and uh, there were lots of opportunities. The market was booming. And 28 days later, I had a job on Wall Street, an entry level job at Citibank. Um, and so I spent a few years at Citi and then. Uh, I wanted to get my uh, MBA degree and I had a scholarship somewhere. So I was going to go for where I had a scholarship, but 
but I decided to go just for one weekend. I would, had been admitted to Yale just to see what I would be missing. And for that, that one weekend I went and I just fell in love with the school and the people and um, New Haven. So I said, I have to come here. This is the place for me. This is the place that's calling me. Um, and I had a fantastic experience. And after I graduated, I uh, joined a large company um, in the financial services industry. And, you know, I worked through many different things and different roles. But a few years ago, I had an opportunity to take over a very um, kind of a, an early stage team, a young team with primarily uh, late, a few millennials and a lot of Gen Z. And I took that job because I knew that there was a lot of value in these engine room operational teams. And also because I, I had the hypothesis that Gen Z, and I think to some extent it's true for the later millennials, that they can accelerate value for companies and enable growth. And we as leaders have not explored how to lead them. We have maybe not adjusted how we lead them, how we behave, what we ask of them, and how we interact with them so that we can enable this growth and enable this acceleration of value. So I took that job as a, with my hypothesis. And I loved working with that team. I found such a pragmatic DIY team that was ready to roll up their sleeves. They were very real. They valued authenticity and being who they are. They liked to have fun. They created a community. And yes, they're, you know, struggles and challenges like in any company, in any team. But I felt that this was a place where I wanted to make a difference. And I also could learn a lot from working with the Gen Z. So that's how my journey started. I love this so, so, so much. And I want to get into how you were able to help accelerate the team and how they learn and all of that jazz. But first, remind me, what, how many countries did this involve? What was the size of this team? and What were the general ages? Yes. So I think over 80% of the team were either Gen Z or millennials. They were people on their first or very early second job out of college. They were spread out in 22 countries and different continents. And what I found is that they had so much in common across geography. So I would be speaking with someone in India and someone in Brazil and age is such a strong commonality and such a common bond that I found that Gen Zs across the world have a lot more in common than what I had seen in obviously in different previous generations when I've led different generations. This is such an interesting point because, and, and you know, as a native digital myself, what I attribute it to is the globalization of media, of content, of et cetera. For example, um, Katie, when I was, again, in Colombia just recently, we'd be sitting on the metro and there would be kids watching the same TikToks with the same music themes as here at home in the U.S. Or when I travel to parts of Latin America, same exact story. And I imagine, would imagine, especially if, you know, a country like Colombia is experiencing that, then how much more in countries that have English as a primary language. So, you know, across the U.K. and, um, you know, Canada. So, Anyway, 
to your point, it seems like there's this entire generation that is so we have to be globally connected because global trends are affecting us all. Do you think that's a fair statement based on your your experience? Yeah, you you said it very well, Hannah. I, I think that the generation is very globally connected. They, uh, in many ways, watch the same shows. They follow the same influencers, and uh, they they have so much in common in fashion and music and art, but also in what they are learning and what they are aspiring to do and who they aspire to become. And so I think the geographical barriers are much, I found with this team, were much less pronounced than they would be with other teams. And I think for, for me, who is not a, a native digital, who is a native analog, that was a learning. And, you know, I had to think about what does that mean? I have to create a community around this team and it's much more natural and it's it's much easier to have a connected one global team than it would have been uh, 10 or 20 years ago. I hear that and I just get so excited. Like the global possibility of this connected, the connectivity, the global mindedness, global mindedness, if I can even talk, is is so powerful, like so that's so incredible. You could have the perspectives of someone who is, you know, growing up in Mumbai, India, and also the perspective of someone in Buenos Aires, Argentina, but they share the same cultural, they have different cultural identities and share the same global connection to music, to fashion, to arts and culture. And yet so many businesses that I, that I work with and, 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 you know, speak with so many leaders don't, understand that translation to your point of, you know, how a native analog can actually leverage that as an advantage and say, look at all these cultural points that connect these native digitals across the globe, whether it's music or fashion, the trends they're talking about, that creates a better work culture, right? Which then leads to more efficient communication and productivity and like all of these things. So, so let me ask you, what is the what did you find were some of the ways you were able to stimulate, um, you know, learning and connection and camaraderie with this global team? Uh, so I tried a few different things and, you know, I had, uh, came up upon some of those solutions by trial and error. But the first, first one is being very clear about the mission, vision and strategy for the team. This is not something that's new for native digitals, but that clarity and especially the translation of what does it mean for me, I think created the uh, created a bit of a community that was engaged behind the same um, behind the same goalposts and behind what we need to accomplish. Now, the the other thing I had to do was. Really let humanity and my humanity as a leader be seen because that's what people wanted. They wanted a personal connection. And one of the blogs that, you know, I used to blog and one of the blogs that got the most um, uh, engagement was a blog that was called uh, Cold and Hungry on the Way to uh, Health and Wellness. And it had nothing to do with our work, but it created this engagement and so many of... um, you know, of my colleagues and the team were focused on health and wellness and um, 
especially during the time of the pandemic. So I think letting your authenticity and letting your humanity show is, is another way to really create the connection. Also, it was about having fun, participating in competitions, winning competitions, having fun. Work is serious and it's important and we need to get results, but it does not have to be without fun and without um, competitions and sharing pictures and doing things. We created a community called Culture Club. And this was really the purpose of this community was it was all volunteers who uh, led global engagement and fun. And uh, I think people really enjoyed participating. So those were some of the things. The other way that, you know, I focused on connecting um, this community was being very fair and putting my uh, budget where my mouth was. And I found that for um, our Gen Z um, colleagues, promotions and pay increases were really key. And I think that this is a big disconnect now between some of the larger companies where as a leader, you may get 1% or 2% pull for bonuses. And this is very dramatically different from the expectations of Gen Z. So I think that companies have some thoughts, they, they have some work to do around that. And I think it's also important for, you know, our Gen Z colleagues to also understand what, what the framework is that they're operating with. Let's unpack that a little bit more. And then I want to jump back to this competition culture experience because that's fascinating too. Don't let me forget. <laughs> but um, I want to unpack this a little bit more. So what I heard you just say, Katie, is big companies in the past has been very used to giving out bonuses or, you know, trips or, you know, whatever sort of incentives for employment. If I understood you correctly, what you what you saw on your global team is that Gen Z resonated much more with pay increases increases and promotion than in title, right? Like a title change, something they could show on their what I call the narcissory, their personal brand online, right? Really show that that things are happening, they're progressing. It, did I hear you correctly? Yes, and I think that there was also a very practical side to this as well as. Um... You know, a lot of Gen Z come with very big student loans on their first job. And so they, they're under pressure. And so pay increases are very important for them. And um, I think that that's where the disconnect is, where, you know, companies have not set the appropriate budget in the past for given the expectations of, of the Gen Z um, colleagues. I don't even want to get into inflation and what that means, but I think that there, there is some thought, some work to be done um, around equalizing expectations and matching expectations and resources so that companies can attract these really, uh, you know, in, in many ways, productive and innovative and pragmatic colleagues that can enable a lot of value. Let me ask you about this scenario I just heard. I think you'll have some really interesting insight on this. So I have a friend who works at a, in general, very healthy, thriving business. Well, he is a data analyst and he started about a year and a half ago, I want to say at this point. So when he was hired or in the interview process, he asked the company about growth opportunities, 
just to sort of see what the potential might be, right? So he entered a very small department at the first analytics division of this company. The company has about 3,000 employees. So the analytics division is this brand new arm in a lot of ways. There was a director, you know, then he was hired. They just added another analyst. Well, the position he's in right now, so he at his one-year review, you know, revisits the conversation about growth with his direct leader. Now, the first conversation one year prior to that at his interview was, our team is growing. We're about to add, you know, five or more employees. Like, we're going to get bigger. There's opportunities for growth into management. Well, fast forward to the one-year review, and he sits down with his his direct leader, who I believe is the director of analytics. And he had a conversation that kind of went like this. You know, the uh, my friend asked about the the growth potential if there was an opportunity for not just pay increases, like he he has an understanding about what his pay will be, but asked him about, you know, is there that management opportunity we're talking about? You know, are there ways to help other divisions of the organization? Is there a, you know, manager of of company analytics position? Are we trying to actually grow in this direction? And his manager laid out for him a growth or promotion plan that had a timeline of eight to 10 years on it. Basically, the next title promotion was after she left and retired. Like, you know, the director, he basically, the director would have to be bumped out before the company would recognize a title change. And, you know, my my friend is sitting there thinking, you know, my work is expanding, like I'm getting to be challenged. That's great. But if on my resume, when I'm looking for my next opportunity or, you know, want to um, join a startup or whatever the case might be, if I haven't had a title promotion in eight years, something's going to look wrong, right? That's, that's the, the gently perspective. It's like change happens fast. So my title, my growth should also happen fast, right? So anyway, I want to get your perspective on this. If you, if you were in a company that you, or you were leading a division that had that sort of structure, what would you recommend to them? Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that your friend got an eight-year plan laid out ahead of him. I I think that uh, that's, you know, that's quite unfortunate. I, I think what has happened is that companies in the past have focused promotions based on business need. And business need can be seen as, look, there is no real business need until the, the other person leaves the company and, you know, an opportunity gets opened up. I think that what has happened, and I've seen that with a number of companies, companies that have more of a people-first culture and a, a much more progressive, they have looked at their organizational structure and they have looked at the roles and they're making incremental, they're making it clear it, at this level, what you expect it to do, what's the appropriate compensation, and then having multiple different steps that so that rather than having one title change in eight years, you may have four title changes in eight years. You're still most likely not going to have a title change in the large companies every year because it's um, probably business doesn't allow that. But I think that there's a lot. Um, to be said for being 
clear on the paths. And that was one of the things that I had to do with the team as well, is be very clear. What are the paths of progression? And what are the expectations at each different level? Um, and, you know, what is the, the expected time frame? And it's not eight years, but it's also not six months. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's maybe a couple of years. What I would recommend for your friend is to really take, really think seriously about um, making a proposal because if he's seeing what needs to be done and that there's work and opportunities, unfortunately, you know, he does not maybe have a, a manager who is able to uh, be, be more proactive and help him. But if he's proactive and he has a mentor or an advisor or someone else who is able to help him put together a proposal, I would say make a proposal to the company and, you know, use your people partner if, you know, they, they should be your ally and say, look, this is, this is what my growth plan is. The timing is completely mismatched, but I'd like to work with this company. I'd like to help. And I think that these are the opportunities here. And, you know, I think let's review, review my arrangement in six months. I love that. And I will suggest it to him. And I want to highlight something you just said, because here's here's the visual this brought to mind when you were talking about how promotions in the past have been based on business needs. And now they need to be based on increment, an incremental pathway of understanding what that promotion means to the employee. Right. So the way the visual I got is a video game. A video game model. Like what what are we used to as native digitals? We're we're used to leveling up our experience points. We're used to yeah. if if we do X, if we have, you know, if we put XYZ inputs into the video game, whether it's practicing a skill or earning, you know, coins or points or whatnot, then there is a quote unquote title change, right? You can you can level up your XP to the point where you get a badge or you add something to your arsenal or like there's very, you can see the outcomes based on your inputs. Yes. And I feel like that's the, what you're describing is, you know, that's my native digital way of interpreting it. When an employee is used to that in their life as a consumer, as a student, then they come into a workplace that tells them, tells them you're not leveling up, on, at least on paper, you know, you're not leveling up until you are here working for us for eight to 10 years. That just doesn't fly anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. Is that there's this big mismatch of timing expectations. And I think for companies, it's very difficult, right? Because they, it's quite challenging for them to completely gamify the experience of, of promotions and title changes. But what I've seen that works is very helping employees gain certain certifications and badges and this encourages learning and it gives them something to brag about on their, you know, social media profile, whether it's agile certification or a green belt in uh, uh, Six Sigma um, or, you know, a class that they've taken. And I, I think that this is a way, one, to keep employees engaged. It's not exactly a uh, promotion, but it's definitely something that um, I've seen the Gen Z are hungry for that and they value it. and. It's also a win-win with the companies because it encourages learning. And obviously, the more learning um, you have, the more you can move up the employees and the work up the value chain and, and uh, enable more value creation. Thank you for that. That is, that's huge, 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 huge. 
So I want to jump back briefly to what you said about culture, the culture club, the challenges. This is something you shared with me last time that just resonated so much. You were talking about a project where your Gen Z team competed in a competition. And you'll have to refresh my memory on what this sort of experience was. But there was there was an element of, you know, you were able to have them accomplish an amazing, you know, outcome in a very short period of time because it was a competition. And we were talking about how how Gen Z learns, how we like to put things out into the world. And it's it's in sprints, right? It's not it's not in the long, you know, sit in front of a desk for eight hours in front of a computer. So walk me through that. How did you guys use competitions to to spur company outputs? I think, you know, we used competitions to engage, um, in, engage our Gen Z colleagues and also to give them uh, a goalpost of something that we're working towards. The, uh, I think learning and fun are two of the, the big things that I have learned that keep our Gen Z um, colleagues engaged and they keep them um, to continue continuing to accelerate and progress in the role. So I think competition does both. It does learning and it does fun. And of course, as any leader, you need to deliver outcomes. And that's a fun and creative way to deliver outcomes. And in, in this case, it was a competition. It was a digital transformation competition that we worked towards and we were very fortunate to win. And it gave a lot of the team members that worked on it, it gave them a tremendous amount of pride and um, excitement. And it, they became champions and they became, uh, I, you know, I didn't have to ask people to to continue to work on these projects. They they became kind of the champions of con- continuing the path forward because they got excited by the game and the competition. It's like you said, it's, a little bit of the model of video games that we applied. I love that. And what were some of the outcomes? If this is a digital transformation competition, like were there other other companies competing and what were the stated outcomes? Oh, yes. Well, there were many companies competing. This was a, you know, it's a standard once a year competition um, in in operational excellence. And it was very exciting. This, This was the first time we won. And the outcome really for the business is that it saved thousands of hours of work because the team was able to upskill themselves and learn how to program bots with low-code bots, robotic process automation. And they were able to automate a process that previously we had done completely manually. Um, And they were able to automate that and, and deliver results. Now, afterwards, we ran into a number of problems and we had to retire some bots and build new bots and, you know, keep learning. So it was not a slam dunk. And I think that that's one thing that both as as, uh, Gen Z and as leaders, we need to be aware of that some of these things are trial and error. And we have to be kind of open to experimenting on both sides and have a little bit of the patience and um, kind of the entrepreneurial spirit to try these different things. That sounds like such a blast. I'm almost env- envisioning you, Katie, as like, you know how it, it, there's this assumption that when you go from, you know, 
school into the work environment, you've got to become this super professional, like fit in the box, do things all the right, you know, the quote unquote right way. And there's every course under the sun about how you dress for an interview and how you're supposed to talk and the corporate language you're supposed to use. And in my mind, it's like, no, the best leaders of teams like this are exactly what you just described. You're like the competition referee. Like you're you're the you're the you're the uh, the the teacher who's like amping up the their students. The coach, yeah, who, who's getting these amazing outcomes by being the one to energize them, to guide them. You're not the court, quote unquote corporate leader who's you know in a in a pants suit all day who's got you know like. It, that just the image you just painted is so very different. And clearly you were an extremely successful leader of Gen Zers because of that sort of approach. And and I speak with, you know, leaders all the time who they're they're sort of thought of it's a good intention, very good intention, but their way of wanting to help is to help kids conform to the way that corporate quote unquote works. Instead of asking the question, how do, could we change our approach to leadership so we get, can deliver the best outcomes, unlock the best outcomes out of these students who are in their first job? Maybe we don't want to conform them to the traditional. Maybe we want to ask them, what would you change about or shift about how we do business or how we think? And in, in my mind, speaking with leaders like you who have done that and taken that approach, there's just so much... They're, they're, the outcomes are so much better. The engagement is so much better. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, I don't want to say that, that, you know, I've been this amazing, successful leader because I have so much to learn and, and so much more that I, I need to be doing. And, you know, over time, hopefully I'll, I'll keep doing that. But the, I think as leaders, and that's, you know, kind of my message to leaders, we need to take first a look at ourselves and see what can we do. We know that a third of the workforce over the next few years is going to be Gen Z and, and you know, the tail end of the millennials as well. And the previous leadership approach is not going to be as effective. So I think first we take a look at ourselves and think about, I had to get myself a reverse mentor and a reverse advisor. And these were Gen Z people who helped me learn about various parts of technology that you know, were new to me as a native analog, and I needed to get myself upskilled on that. And a reverse advisor who was able to um, to help me think as, as, you know, as we're putting plans or we're launching new initiatives, how would they resonate with that young workforce? So first I had to, you know, kind of learn and, and take a look at myself and then really think about, am I communicating with clarity and translating the path to success and making it very real for individual Gen Zs? Am I putting the budget, my budget, and using it in a way that justifies, you know, shows proof of what I am saying? Am I connecting as a human to human and having personal communication and not these big town halls that people skip all the time and these, you know, making announcements in these emails? And then the last one is, do I have a flat org structure where, you know, I don't have many layers of responsibilities and maybe I have, uh, to the extent possible, millennials leading millennials or millennials leading Gen Z or even Gen Z leading Gen Z and look for companies to make that shift 
it's this is going to be a process. Some companies are making it already and, you know, others are a little further behind. This is not going to be an overnight uh, process. It's going to take a bit of time and a bit of an adjustment. But I think as leaders, I have noticed that the leaders who adjusted and who used the kind of this approach and the connection and the competitions and the fun, the team followed them. And, you know, they went along and you were able to get a lot more out of the team than um, leaders who were just focused on the business outcomes and, um, and less of creating the connected ecosystem of a Gen Z team. This is so good. It's like gold is just pouring out of your mouth. I love it so much. And I think every leader needs to hear this and every Gen Zer too needs to hear that there are leaders who understand us and and how to unlock that potential. So this has been so good. And for the sake of your time, I want to be respectful of it. Just want to ask you one last question. And that's what is the, you know, what is if you could sum this all up or or give us any final thoughts, either to leaders or to Gen Z, um, what what would you share? Like what's the thing if you got 30 seconds to share with every single leader around the world who's leading a Gen Z team, what would you share? Let, let me very quickly share a, a couple pieces of advice to the Gen Zs first. Yes, please and do. I think for, the Gen, for Gen Zs, uh, the pragmatic, such a pragmatic generation uh, in general and uh, DIY, look and make your own path. So if a company, if you work in a large company and you know some of these things are not available, Take accountability, roll up your sleeves and make proposals. Use your um, people person or your people partner. Use your leader, use your mentor and go after what you want. You would be surprised. Instead of doing quiet quitting or doing the great resignation and resigning and looking for the next company, there's a lot you can do already. So I would, this is my advice for the, for the Gen Z is um, make your own proposal of what to do what would make you happy? You would be surprised. Not everything can be done, but you would be surprised. And the second is have a little patience as well, because sometimes quitting a job and going somewhere else where you could have waited a few months and what you really wanted would have come to you. So I think, you know, understanding that. But for the leaders, I would say, don't be afraid to let your humanity show. Create an ecosystem of a connected community that knows that you have their back and you're there to lead them, but you're also there to learn with them. Be very clear and translate what success looks like for this team and what is a good business outcome. And then use your money and organizational structure to attract and retain our Gen Z colleagues and it will translate into return on investment and, and increased profits. So good. This is so good. I have so enjoyed this conversation, Katie, and you are welcome back anytime. Thank you for your insight, for the really, really practical tips, and also just expanding my mind from your own story and your background. It's amazing. Um, I, I'm so glad we're friends, and I, I can't wait to 
to see where see where this goes and see how um how I can support your work in the future too. I mean, this is this is such this is this is the dialogue, Katie, that should be happening in every single company right now. Every single company should be having conversations like this. So I know you're doing work to support that, you know, happening and trying to help, you know, other leaders have that same vision. So thank you for for that and what you're doing. And Hannah, thank you so much for inviting me and having me on your podcast. I love watching your work and uh, uh, what you have done in such a short time and how you've accelerated the progress. Uh, I, I love that now we have many different paths. And for some people in the past, we maybe we just had the eight-year path to progress. And now we have so many different paths that Gen Z are taking. And um I love working with, with, with the teams and I love um, learning from them. And I think that it's, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think it's a process and companies will learn and um, Gen Zs will learn, but I'm very optimistic. I think there's uh, exciting work ahead of us on both sides. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.